Well, as you can tell, we will begin a new series, and what I'd like to do this morning, introduce you to what is described as the Olivet Discourse, or more commonly referred to as Jesus' Bible Prophecy in Matthew 24, and don't forget 25. 25 is part of it. In fact, 25 is a very important part of the Olivet Discourse. And we will be moving through, not so much this morning, I'm going to give you more of an introduction, but we will be moving sentence by sentence, as we said before. And sometimes if there's a lot in that sentence, it may take us two weeks to get through it. But what's the hurry, right? (laughs) So, the Olivet Discourse, it's called Olivet, because that's where Jesus and the disciples were. And we'll talk about that when we get to the first couple of verses there. And this would be the view, the slide here is the view from the Mount of Olives. So somewhere on the Mount of Olives, the disciples are sitting, listening to to Jesus and admiring the structures. Now, obviously, this is not a shot from first century. I'm old, but not that old. (laughs) But they were looking at a site something like this, and obviously the Mount of Olives hasn't changed in terms of its terrain. Structures are new and that sort of thing. So this is something of what they would be looking towards as Jesus is expounding a very, very important sermon, you might say, or discourse. This is his Bible prophecy. And what he does is he summarizes much of the Old Testament prophecy, and I'm going to give you a little background on that. So, the Olivet Discourse, I'm going to first give you a little introduction here. It's another shot, panoramic view of the same place, same location. A little background, and a little reason why we, as a group, wanted to get into the Olivet Discourse, and most of you suggested, as we finish the book of Hebrews, this topic, and I kind of brought as many suggestions as I could together. But to kind of introduce it, let me give you a feel for what's going on in our culture a little bit. And we wanted to talk about the culture in relationship to what God may be doing. So we're going to do that by way of introduction. There was a Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville, a scholar, historian that visited the U.S. in the 1850s or so, and he went back, wrote a book describing America, and he was very impressed, and he described something of the culture at that time, and what he said is there is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And there can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to the human nature than that its influence is most powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation of the earth. Now he's describing how Christianity has had an impact on our culture and has shaped us as a nation. That was where the country was in the 1850s, 1800s, and somewhat before. Not that we are a perfect nation, but there were some things that people could observe from the outside that were very, very commendable. The country was based on a biblical world view. 
The problem is we have departed from that biblical worldview. I want to kind of rekindle what that biblical worldview is this morning, briefly. We'll do it at the speed of light, so you might fasten your seatbelts, but that's what I want to do because things have changed. That is not America anymore. And how does that relate to what God may be doing? That's what we want to talk about. There's been massive changes in the culture, and we are seeing right before our eyes that Christian influence essentially being removed. Christianity is being removed from the culture. And I give you just lots of examples. Prayer from in the schools, removed. Christmas time, you can't display on public property. Things like that. The military, even chaplains are having a hard time saying the name of Jesus Christ. They can't pray in Jesus' name in some places. So there's a concerted effort to remove Christianity from the culture. Like I said, I can give you a lot of other examples. We have observed recently, most recently, unbiblical Supreme Court decisions that go totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. These are things that are part of this unraveling, I think, of our culture and our our country, and uh, the enemies of Christianity are having their way. We have growing socialism, which I think even politically you could make a case, a lot of elements of socialism goes against biblical principles. We have world pressures, obviously, and I could... We can talk about Iran and all these other issues, the Middle East and our foreign policy, etc. So we have all these massive changes that are taking place right before our eyes. And what we need to do as believers, and this will be the emphasis of the whole series, we need to think biblically and we need to evaluate things on a biblical basis. We have to develop a biblical worldview in order to do that. And part of what we will be doing here is emphasizing a biblical worldview to properly respond to all the pressures and the things that we will have to cope with in the future. Because things, like I said, are changing, and we have been comfortable as believers for a long time. That may radically change, so we need to be prepared for that. And unfortunately, the churches overall are failing to prepare believers for things that are coming, for things that have already taken place. And in the book of Hebrews, we touched on a few of these things as they were related to the passages we were dealing with. And I think that spurred some interest in this whole topic. And that's why we're dealing with it as a group. So that's some of what we want to do. And as a result of what's been going on, same author, Tocqueville, he kind of describes where we're at right now. Now, he was not a prophet, but he described what would happen if certain things were removed, and what he says, the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. Is that happening today? It's happened. (laughs) In fact, it's been going on for several decades now. And politicians make a good point of, what can I do for you? How can we spend money for you? And there's a lot of things that uh, have been implemented that have really changed the culture. So, the Olivet Discourse introduces us to some of these things, even from the first century. 
because things have not really changed much overall in terms of spirituality. So let's take a look, and what I'd like to do is give you a foundation to the Olivet Discourse. Why did Jesus find it necessary to talk about these prophetic events? Well, prophetic events are not isolated. They're just part of an overall plan that God has. And what I want to do is give you, at light speed, we'll go through this very rapidly, but I'd like to give you kind of the big picture, the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Why he created a universe, and what he's doing, and how he's interacting with the world, in order to get a perspective on what is yet to take place. So, in a nutshell, I'm going to give you a survey of world history. So, in some ways, uh, this will be a review of the world history course that you took at UNM. You'll laugh because you know it's going to be a little different. This will be real world history. This is world history. What you take at UNM or any secular school or what you read in a secular world history book is very, very superficial in comparison to the world history that is reality. So let me give you a brief overview of that. And the reason we want to do this is because we want to be in touch with what's going on in the world because God is interacting with the world and God is dealing with things in the world to accomplish sovereignly an overall big plan that if you're not aware of, you can probably look at things around you and be depressed. You can be discouraged. You can be disillusioned. You can wonder what's going on. So that's what we want to do. In uh, Matthew 16, verses 1 through 3, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you a brief overview of Matthew as well. This is after they have already re- the leaders have already rejected him. That Now they're just trying to find an occasion to do away with him. And notice what Jesus does in responding to them. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you read the context, he had already performed several signs, in fact, spectacular ones, that made it crystal clear that he, in fact, was the Messiah. So there was no question, if they were honest, the evidence was there that testified that Jesus was the one that Israel had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And now they're just testing him, as Matthew indicates there. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in a situation where they can begin to carry out a plot. And I'll allude to that later on. So, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven, but he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In other words, you know how to tell the weather. You can predict the events relating to climatology. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. So you can tell some things just from things surrounding you. And just like today, you get a weather forecast for a century. People could do the same thing. And notice, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And that's what this class is going to be all about understanding what is going on in the culture, understanding the culture in which we live in, understanding the times, and this key word, signs of the times. 
Now, I'm going to emphasize this, and hopefully we'll get at the end here. There's a lot of websites, there's a lot of Bible teachers, there's a lot of information out there about Bible prophecy, and I think a lot of it is not biblical, and a lot of it is distorted, and there's a lot of sensationalism. We want to avoid that. And I think if we stick to the intent of Scripture and a proper hermeneutic, we can avoid the sensationalism that's out there. There's a big deal being made about the blood moons, that you know, the fourth one this year tonight. That's what I'm talking about. So I want to kind of give us a perspective on a proper approach to Bible prophecy. And we'll get to that hopefully at the end here. So Jesus is reprimanding the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of that day, that they did not know what was going on in their culture. Everything was prepared. In fact, God, from Genesis 1-1, had been preparing the world for the most important event of world history. What is that event? Can't hear you. His birth, resurrection, crucifixion, I think all of those are part of it. That would be a part of it. But we could summarize it, incarnation. That's the most important event of all of world history. Not the discovery of America, not the invention of the wheel, not all the things that you'll read in your UNM text. The most important event of world history is the coming of God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, the coming of Messiah. Most important event. And I'm going to give you kind of an overview of all of the major events of world history and where it's headed and what God has done in the past to prepare that generation of the first century. They should have looked at conditions around them and have been able to conclude Messiah, it's the time for Messiah to arrive and that Jesus was, in fact, that Messiah. So that's what Jesus reprimands them. So let's begin. What I'm going to do is give you this thumbnail sketch of world history. I'm going to give you a world history from eternity to eternity. All right? Now look that one up in your UNM world history text. What will you find in it? Where does it begin? Evolution. <laughs> Where does it end? Well, they don't know. They just bring world history up to some recent events in world history. Well, the Bible gives us world history from eternity to eternity. And God within that has created a universe that he has a plan for. That's what I want to develop in the next few minutes here. It begins with the creation event. Very important. That's why we call ourselves foundations, the foundation group. Because we started with foundations. We started with uh, Genesis. We started with creation. And there's a lot of confusion here, and we looked at it scientifically. And uh, obviously, because we're committed to inspiration, we believe what God has written. And we conform everything else to what God has revealed. So it begins with creation. Now, I could give you the series of events. I'm not going to do it on this slide. I'm going to give it on a different chart. But we also have the major event of all of world history, somewhat in the middle, you might say. In fact, because 
culture had a biblical worldview, it measured the calendar or time in relationship to that event. B.C. and A.D., now that's minimized today, but everything before Christ, in fact, a way that you can summarize all of the Old Testament, if you want to summarize it, you could call it preparation or anticipation of Messiah. That summarizes everything you have in the Old Testament. Messiah arrived, but there's still some history. Messiah did some things. We're living in an era or a time. We'll look at it in a moment. But everything is headed where? What is the end of history? I can hear you. Wow. Well, I'm talking about history. That's beyond history. Heaven, the eternal state, is beyond history. Second coming, but more specifically, the second coming and the establishment of what the Bible describes as the kingdom. Everything is headed towards a kingdom where God himself rules. So that's where everything is headed. We need to put everything within that historical perspective in evaluating things that take place in our culture today. This chart is a summary of all of world history on one chart. So let's go over it. Begins with the foundation of creation. And I've laid these out kind of like foundation stones that build on one another. So each foundation stone builds upon and is a foundation for everything else that follows. So if you have a faulty understanding of what God did in creation, and much of the church does today, then everything else is going to be distorted. So creation, I believe, is fundamental and foundational. That's why it's so important to understand it clearly. And to understand it clearly, I think we have to understand it from the way that God has presented it, because that's reality. And in this class, we made a case for taking the passages as they're presented, or we describe that as literal or historical contextual, or historical grammatical contextual. And if you do that, then uh, God created in six days. He had a purpose for that. Not because he needed six days. He could have created instantaneously had he wanted to. But he created in six days to set a pattern for other things that he was going to do later on. Make sense? This is just a summary, so I don't want to get bogged down. The original creation that we live in today, the natural realm that we live in today, is not the same as what God created. He created a very good creation. Do we live in a very good creation today? No. So when you do science... We are not in a position to be able to evaluate the creation that was before the next major event, the fall of mankind. From the creation event, God laid out a plan for humanity that he would eventually bring about. So after the creation of man... In verse 28 of Genesis 1, remember he created man after his own image, after his own likeness, and that's verse 26, and just the next verse after 26 and 27, we have verse 28, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, 
God's plan involves, in a big way, family. Marriage and family, right off the bat. It's part of God's plan. That's part of God's intention for all things. It's not surprising that in our culture, the family is under attack. Marriage and family are under attack. We're redefining it. We're seeing the unraveling of what God intends and desires. So, first part of this mandate, or the what I call a creation mandate, is family, being fruitful and multiplied. Start with two individuals, God intended that to grow, and that man would nurture and develop family. And he would support that family by the second aspect, subduing it and ruling over it. Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the living things that move that moves on the earth. God designed mankind as rulers. He intended subduing and ruling the earth. This is the original creation. And then in verse 31, as I've already mentioned, he pronounced all of this very good. So our purpose as humanity, as a culture, must be related somehow to subduing and ruling. And you can do that in the workplace. You can do that in every aspect of, of living, in fact, we should be conscious of that. But I want you to notice the little phrase, to rule over, basically, the earth. God had delegated to the first man and first woman, and what did they go about doing? On a small scale, they ruled over the garden. They subdued it, and that was to extend to the whole world after they are multiplied and filled the earth. So this is at the heart of what God is doing overall. And we're going to find out this is the reason it's going to end with man ruling. Because it begins at the very beginning and as part of the purpose of what God has in his plan. Okay? So we have creation and we're not living in that same creation. Therefore, we develop this in some detail. You can't study that creation given today's science because the principles have changed as a result of the entrance of sin. So this is very fundamental, the fall of mankind. That is the second major event of world history. Look for that one in your world history book. The fall of mankind. Everything changed. You could even, and I like to summarize, the rest of world history as God reversing the effects of sin that man brought on, God reversing. And some people see the Bible as God bringing redemption. It's not just spiritual redemption. God is going to redeem the earth as well. And if you read descriptions of the millennial kingdom, God is going to reverse a lot of the scientific principles that are in effect relating to the planet itself, or universe itself. Can you let a lamb lay with a lion today? Only if you want to feed your pet lion. (laughs) In the millennium, you're not going to have that issue. You're not going to have that problem. Nature, biology, and I think there's other, there's going to be some reversal of the second law of thermodynamics or some tampering or tweaking of it. I think the second law of thermodynamics came into effect, not in the original creation, came about as a result of the fall. And I can show you that from scripture. So we have a fall, 
And because sin does damage, God intervenes to deal with sin. So very early we have a corruption of all of humanity that God deals with, and in dealing with it, he judges sin. And judgment, you can view judgment biblically, God separating out that that he loves from that that is destroying what he loves. That's what the flood is. He takes one family and he judges the earth in a worldwide cataclysmic event. Now, all of nature was affected by that Genesis flood as well. And you can look at it from scientific perspective. We've done that. So the flood lays the foundation for a new beginning of, of humanity. But man still has a sin nature. That's illustrated because in the last days of Noah, what does Noah do? The last story about Noah, we see his sin. Yeah. The next major event in world history is God, and we don't have a lot of detail here, but we see after the flood, this new generation multiplies, but because sin is still present... Sin also multiplies, and we have the first organized rebellion against God on a cultural basis, and God must intervene, and in Genesis uh, 10 and 11, we have another judgment of God, and where God scatters the peoples. God intended that those early generations fill the, what? Earth. And what did they do? They gathered together and organized and said, we don't want to be scattered, so let's organize lest we be scattered. And God intervenes, and this is gracious, by the way. God intervenes, judges, and separates the peoples by confusing the languages. This is the origin of the nations now. If you want to know where the nations came from, this event gives us that historical background. Your UNM text won't tell you where the nations come from. They have a lot of assumptions that Keep them from understanding it. Pardon me? And languages. And languages, very good, yeah. In fact, the languages determine the ethnic groups and the national groups. Now, what God is going to do, um, and the book of Genesis tells us, the next major event is Abraham, and something related to Abraham. Out of the nations, he's going to call one man, and rather than work with all of the nations, he's going to develop another nation from one man. He's going to make some promises. They're more than promises. He's going to enter into covenant. This is contract. A legal document with Abraham and his descendants that will ultimately lead to other things in world history. That document, that legal document, sets the parameters for all of the rest of world history. There are elements of the Abrahamic covenant that have not yet been fulfilled even in our day. It's going to set the parameters for the coming of Messiah. That's interpreted for us by Paul himself in Galatians chapter 3. Jesus, in large measure, fulfills many aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. So everything, all the parameters of world history are set to Messiah but there are still aspects that have not been fulfilled that will not be fulfilled until that last phase of world history. So it sets the parameters for all world history. 
So if you want to understand Chinese history or Middle Eastern history or even American history, you need to understand this bigger picture. God is moving to accomplish a sovereign plan. Make sense? So out of the nations, he draws one man. That nation, God intended to be a counterculture. In other words, they were going to be his people, his nation, and Israel is a nation, in contrast to all of the nations, and it will be through that nation that others will come to know the creator of the universe. So, in that promise, God promised that there would be Israel, a nation. So much of what God is doing, historically, deals with the nation of Israel. And what did God intend? What is the high point of the history of the nation of Israel? I'm going real fast here. God bless them. Well, the leader of all nations. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant specified that through Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed. And through the nation of Israel, all the nations would be blessed. Okay, that's part of it. That's the major blessing. Exactly. What else is involved in the Abrahamic covenant? There are three stipulations, or three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. Stipulations, you could say. First of all, before land, seed, in other words, descendants, a descendant ultimately, but descendants, Isaac, and then eventually descendants, which would be ultimately the nation of Israel, land, so land is going to be very important. Israel in the land, very important, and blessing. Through Israel, we are blessed. The biggest blessing is the coming of Messiah. But we also, the scriptures are a product of what God produced through the nation of Israel. So we have already, all of the world has been blessed as a result of God revealing himself in scripture Scriptures that he used the nation of Israel to write down. He inspired and gave an inerrant record. So we have Israel. What is the high point of Israel? Israel's history. In the land, in other words, the descendants, the seed of Abraham, in the land. And how were they a a blessing? What did God develop? What's the high point? Who's the high point leader? David. David. You could include Solomon. And what did they do? They what? They ruled. At the heart of what God is doing in world history is developing a kingdom. That kingdom, and at that time frame, it fulfilled another covenant, Davidic covenant, which is a subset of the Abrahamic covenant, And in that, God set up Israel as, again, that prime nation that would rule the world. And during David, he subdued all of the enemies. And during Solomon, they occupied the land in peace and security. And God manifested his presence. And all of the nations came to Israel to understand the wisdom of Solomon and to understand something of Yahweh or the one true God. God intended that Israel be a light of the world. Now they failed, and the kingdom collapsed, and in that collapse we have all of the prophets and all of the dark history of the nation of Israel until God judged them and sent them into captivity. But God never forfeited this kingdom idea, this ruling idea, this idea where man would be God's sovereign 
on a limited basis, sovereign representative on the planet. The outworking of Genesis 1.28. All right? Now, for most of you, we've gone over a lot of this several times. You said earlier, a kingdom. So, this is kind of a prototype of the ultimate kingdom. In fact, all of elements of the ultimate kingdom will be present in that final millennial kingdom. I can show you that as well. In fact, we'll probably look at some of that when we get into the Olivet Discourse. Well, because Israel failed, the prophets predict that Messiah would arrive and he would be the king. He would be the ultimate sinless king. The problem with the kingdom is they had sinful kings and sinful people. Messiah would come, deal with sin, and he would be sinless. Okay? What did they do with Messiah? They rejected him. Israel rejected him. The world rejected him. Crucified him. What the Olivet Discourse is going to do, well, if if Jesus was the Messiah and he came, what happened to the kingdom? The Olivet Discourse is going to explain that. So, Jesus established kind of an interim period of time. We call it the church age. Now, you think the church age should dominate everything else. You know, it's always all about us, right? Well, it's just kind of a subset of a bigger plan that God has. But what do we know from prophetic scriptures within, even given to the church, but particularly Old Testament? And by the way, eschatology, I'm going to stress this over and over, eschatology doesn't primarily deal with the church. Eschatology is first and foremost and predominantly Jewish. So you need to look at things from a Jewish perspective and from the Jewish scriptures. And by the way, when we, one of the things we're going to do next week, we're going to look at some of the prophets and what did they say and what were they predicting because they will set a foundation for the Olivet Discourse. But what do we anticipate after the church age? The second coming of Messiah in order to establish the kingdom. And the book of Revelation tells us it's a millennial kingdom. This is world history. This is what God is doing in the universe, what he has planned. And what we anticipate is a second coming that establishes a kingdom where Christ will rule. And we're going to see what it's like to live in a culture where a sinless king rules. And there's lots of aspects to that. We'll get into some of that. That's world history in a nutshell in one slide. And in the fullness of time, Paul says, in other words, everything was prepared. Everything was set in place. That's why the Pharisees should have been able to discern the times, the signs from the times. Paul says, but when the fullness of time came, in other words, everything was prepared, the most important event of world history came about. In the fullness of time, God set forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, the climactic event of world history is the first coming of Christ, and because he was rejected, he will return, which is another climactic event. So the main issue, if Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? What happened to the kingdom? That's one of the things we're going to answer in uh, this study. Let me give you a quick overview, and we won't have time to go into this. Just jot these down. I was going to try to read these. Maybe we'll even start with this 
next time we get into the Olivet Discourse. Well, the kingdom is offered when the king arrived. Jesus offered it. In 3, 1 through 2, John the Baptist says, Behold, what? No. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the king is here, therefore the kingdom will be established. Matthew. These are all Matthew. Matthew 3, 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus, in Matthew's account, initiates his his ministry, he basically repeats virtually the same words as John the Baptist. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapters 5 through 6, the first discourse, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, deals with the kingdom. See how many times the word kingdom is referred to? And what it is, it's preparation for that generation or any generation that is hoping and anticipating the kingdom, it's preparation for the coming of the kingdom. That's the way you can summarize the Sermon on the Mount. And chapters 8 and 9, we have a series of miracles that Matthew groups together. Those miracles are designed to, to say, this is the Messiah, only the Messiah can do these things. He has authority over sickness, he has authority over demons, Cast out demons, he has authority over nature, he calms the sea. This is the Messiah, and these are his credentials. This is his authentication. That's chapters 8 or 9 in Matthew's Gospel. And his ministry in public becomes more and more pronounced, more and more popular. That's why the arrow is in the upward slant. And then something happens in chapter 12 where everything turns, and I'll get to that in a moment, so he is authenticated, and in chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, somebody look that one up uh, real quick. 12:14, he is rejected. This is the beginning of a series of events that will ultimately lead to the ultimate rejection. Go ahead, Connie. And the Pharisees went out into the council against him, how they might destroy him. How they might destroy him. In Matthew, this is the turning point of the whole book. They create a plot to kill Jesus. The rest of Matthew and the rest of the life of Christ is just a series of events leading to his death. And then in chapter 13, we have a new form of the kingdom. We have parables of the kingdom. A new form. Now, we've spent a lot of time explaining what that is. So, his popularity peaks publicly. Now, he continues on a limited basis to minister publicly, but primarily it's private. There's a turning point. Here's the plot in chapter 12. And after that plot, we have an increase in opposition. Now, I pointed downward because it's a kind of a increase in negative things that leads ultimately to the cross. On one slide, this is all of Matthew, by the way. I gave you all of world history on one slide. On one slide, this is all of Matthew. Now, the ministry of Christ becomes more private. He devotes to the disciples. And part of that begins in chapter 13. These parables are designed. He gives a purpose of the parables in that. And in chapter 21, verses 42 through 43, the, the kingdom is removed. Matthew is going to answer the question, what happened to the kingdom? The kingdom is removed from that generation. It's not destroyed. It's not transformed into an amillennial kingdom or postmillennial kingdom. It is, instead of 
destroyed. It's only removed from that particular generation. And what's happening here is we have this opposition and the final rejection in uh, Matthew 21 through 22 that ultimately leads to the cross in uh, chapter 27. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 28. So that's all of Matthew on one slide. Got it? The last thing on this slide here is what the Olivet Discourse does. That's Matthew 24 and 25. It makes clear that the kingdom is postponed. And in a Jewish mind, when he thinks of kingdom, he would not have ever dreamed that it would be all millennial. The kingdom had all of the features of the kingdom that they knew about in the Old Testament. It would have a king that was greater than David. It would be in the land of Israel, literally. It would have a temple, and it would have the manifestation of God's presence. Israel would occupy the land in peace and security. There would also be great prosperity in the kingdom. And Israel would be a light to the nations. All of those are a description of the millennial kingdom. Because that's where world history is headed. So that is what the Olivet Discourse is going to give us. Jim. That concept is carried over from and Reform was secured that on. Yes. The history for a years. Yeah, well, to this day. Carries on to this day. Yes. Yeah, we could look at the history of that, and you've summarized it briefly. Would you explain the benefit of all the amillennialism? Oh, okay. Amillennialism is that there's no literal millennial kingdom as described in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament but also the book of Revelation, and also references in the Gospels. When Jesus offered the kingdom, he offered what Israel anticipated based on the Davidic covenant, with all those elements I just described. So amillennialism today, which is the predominant viewpoint, says, no, there's not going to be a kingdom. Israel's been replaced by the church. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a real, earthly, visible kingdom, you have to spiritualize all of those Old Testament and Book of Revelation passages. Thank you, Connie. Well, the Alvet Discourse, I'm going to have to conclude a little early here in terms of what I want to cover. The Alvet Discourse, you guys aren't surprised, right? (laughs) Alvet Discourse, delivered shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, this is Tim LaHaye, is the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. Pretty strong statement. It is significant because it came from Jesus himself immediately after he was rejected by his own people and because it provides the master outline of end-time events. So it gives us the capstone of where history is headed, but I wanted to give you what precedes that so that you know the context from which it, it lies. So that's the Olivet Discourse. And that's the foundations for the Olivet Discourse, and that's a good place to stop. We'll uh, pick up, and I'll give you some of the approaches to the Olivet Discourse when we come back. Now, next week, I'm going to look at Ezekiel, because Ezekiel 
gives us an Old Testament perspective on Bible prophecy. And like I said, we need to look at Bible prophecy from the eyes of the Jewish people. Because Bible prophecy or eschatology is kind of the theological term. Eschatology is Jewish. So you have to have that perspective. All church eschatology fits within that Jewish, that Jewish eschatology. Okay, Jim, why don't you close for us?